Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings, as much as the buildings themselves. When it comes to increasing the resilience of your development site, how do you choose where to put the money? How do you strike the right balance between investing in climate resilience and the potential cost of climate risk in a fast-changing environment? On this panel discussion from the Developer Live Risk and Resilience Conference, we hear from Dr. Catherine Oldham, OBE, Chief Resilience Officer from Greater Manchester Combined Authority, Alexandra Notte, Build to Rent Fund Director from PFP Capital, Chantal Henderson, Director of Commercial Finance from Govesner, Britain and Ireland, Paul Berg, Partner and Group Director from Griffiths and Armour, and Jack Wollstonecroft, Client Services Director from Griffiths and Armour. Thank you very much. Um, it's a pleasure to be here today and to share some of the work that we're doing in Greater Manchester. I'm going to be talking about urban resilience today. And I sometimes get asked why the focus on the urban environment and on cities. And I'm sure most people in the room are aware that over 50% of the world's population now live in cities. Global projections suggest that 60% of the area projected to be urban by 2050 has yet to be built. And my background is in emergency response. And so for me, understanding the resilience of our cities as we start to build those cities of the future is really important. And that sounds like a global agenda. But in Greater Manchester, our growth projections are for 10% growth over the next sort of 15, 20 years. So that's the equivalent of building the city of Manchester all over again. So resilience is a concept that, I mean, as today illustrates, is becoming increasingly important internationally um, and nationally. For me, it's great everybody's talking about it, but arguably it could also be a bit of a buzzword. And that means everybody could be talking about something slightly different. Um, so the definition we use is on the slide. And it's the definition used by the 100 Resilient Cities Network, which is an initiative pioneered by the Rockefeller Foundation. And it incorporates the concepts of shocks or emergencies, but also the chronic stresses, so the, the pressures cities face that undermine their capacity and the capacity of their communities to deal with some of the challenges that they face. In Greater Manchester, we are also part of the United Nations Making Cities Resilient program. So that has over 4,300 cities worldwide focusing on resilience and what that means in the urban context. And there's quite um, an interesting concept that I think is important for today that the United Nations talk about. And that is that there is no such thing as a natural disaster. So they would be clear that there are natural hazards, but that the disaster comes when we expose people to those risks, when people are vulnerable and don't have the capacity to deal with the risks that they face. The United Nations program has a 10-point checklist. And 
in that checklist, the importance of the urban environment is at the forefront. So I wanted to um, concentrate a little bit on the, the hazards that we face, because I think actually it's sometimes easy to overlook them. Um, today, obviously, our thoughts are with people in Sheffield, Doncaster and Worksop that are facing flooding. But it's really important that we think about this as we design our cities for the future. Some of the challenges we face are on this slide. We've talked about climate change this morning. I've talked about urbanisation. Globalisation is another trend. It brings international trade. It brings, for me, the capacity for aid to be moved swiftly from one area of the world to another in a disaster. But it also assists some of the hazards we face to spread, whether that's through our supply chains or whether it's the, it, the disaster itself, such as something like um, infectious disease, pandemic flu. So going back to my definition of resilience, um, it incorporated shocks, and this is just to illustrate some of the shocks that we might face in Greater Manchester. Every area in the UK draws up a community risk register that sets out the emergencies that it may face. And most of the emergencies on this slide we have faced in the last 10 years. So when we look at land use planning, it's really important for me that we take these sorts of shocks into account because it's through good land use planning we avoid things like subjecting communities to flooding or that we avoid urban heat island effects. Um, but it's also important to recognise um, how we can concentrate risks in our urban environment. And it's not just the shocks. The other stress that I was talking about, the other issue I was talking about was stresses. So these are some of the stresses in Greater Manchester. And I'm sorry, I always feel my presentations are a bit characterised by doom and gloom, really. Um, we have the second biggest economy outside of London in Greater Manchester. But it doesn't stop us facing some challenges, such as ageing infrastructure, I used to think most of our sewer system was Victorian until we flooded a number of years ago, and I found it predated that in some areas by a couple of centuries. Um, some areas we have poor health and well-being outcomes. There can be a 10-year discrepancy in life expectancy between some areas of our city. Um, and we've talked about reduction in biodiversity already this morning, and that's an agenda we face in Greater Manchester as well. So when we talk about the scale of the challenge that we face, um, these are um, some of the challenges we face if we're to address climate change. And just to, we've been doing a lot of work to try and distill these, these global trends into what it means at the local level and what it means for our communities in Greater Manchester. And if I just pick out two of these statistics, we need all new build in Greater Manchester to be carbon neutral by 2028. We need 61,000 homes a year to be retrofitted to, to achieve the required standards. And when we start to distill some of the change needed down into what we need to do at the local level, I think it really highlights 
the shift that's required in all of our thinking. And this graph shows some of the work that we've been doing to really um, understand how likely we are to achieve our aspirations. So the gray is, is where we want to be if we too are to achieve um, the, the sort of carbon ambitions that we have. The blue line is where we'll get to if we pull on every lever we've already identified. The red is where we think we'll actually be if we can persuade the level of um, industry, public, um, public sector change um, that we think is actually um, easy to, or not easy to achieve, but is achievable. That means that the green, the green hashing, that's where we require innovation where we require something new that we don't really know about at the moment to try and pull ourselves in line with our carbon targets. And just to um, bring in another aspect of resilience, I think as well as the challenge of scale, we have the challenge of complexity. That whenever I am talking about resilience, I drift into a systems approach. You know, this is about every system in the city. You know, whether it's our built environment, our green environment, whether it's about our communities, whether it's about our economy. And it's how all of those play in together. And I think that gives us a very big challenge because it is about how everything touches everything else. And just one thing that I don't want to lose sight of is that within that, we have the city and we have the urban environment of the city. But the city sits within its surrounding environment. And for us, we have moorlands sitting around Greater Manchester. And they tend to illustrate the story of resilience very graphically, actually. They, are, they protect Greater Manchester from the shock of flooding. They bring, sometimes, the shock of moorland fire. And we had that in 2018. They protect the city from climate change. They are one of the biggest carbon stores in the world, the, the peat moorlands around Greater Manchester and across the, the Earth's surface. But they are hugely influenced by the cities that sit on the edge of them because of industrial pollution um, and some of the challenges that that can bring and now climate change. So it's just to try and widen out our thinking about all the different aspects of the city and its context that influence resilience. And just as I finish up, um, one of the things we are trying to do is to understand how we can build resilience into all the major projects in Greater Manchester. And that brings a, a focus on the sort of co-benefits that you can bring. So as well as perhaps looking at a major infrastructure development, you can look at the green infrastructure that goes alongside it. Our issue in this, and other speakers have touched on it, is how we value that. And so we are doing a lot of work around trying to put financial value on green infrastructure, um, on social ca capital, and um, all the different agendas that play in here. But just conscious of, of time, um, I think there is a real challenge for all of us in the room about the speed of change needed. Um, this statistic actually is from the US, but it talks about 
that we only really rebuild 1% to 2% of our cities every year. So when we are talking about wanting to fundamentally change the way we live and the environment in which we live, actually, the current rates are it will take at least a generation to get to where we want to get. So I suppose some of my key messages are going to be about if we want a more resilient future, then every single building development matters. It's not just about the huge big developments. That we need resilience to be at the forefront of our thinking, because otherwise it is our homes that will be flooded. It is our communities that will be dealing with heat island effects and some of the really difficult challenges that heat waves bring. And the scale of the challenge, I think, is huge. It's not to be underestimated. But then the opportunities, if we can get this right, are equally as big. So thank you very much for listening. And hand over to another speaker. Hi, guys. My name's Alex Mote. I'm the fund director at PFP Capital. Um, I am one of the few people not affected by PERDA. However, I am affected by the fact that we are actively fundraising at the moment. So I'm not allowed to tell you anything particularly exciting or commercially sensitive. So I'm going to give you a very, very short kind of rundown of the kind of house PFP capital, what it is, what we do. But then really just try and take you through a more kind of an anecdote led my perspective as someone who's been in real estate finance and working around sustainability and risk and resilience for kind of 15 years as kind of some of that context point that Christine had mentioned. Um, so PFP Capital is all about targeting fund and asset management in real estate for social value. Actually, you may not have heard of PFP Capital, but I'm sure many of you might have come across our parent company, Places for People, uh, which is one of the largest property development and management and regeneration companies in the UK. It started as the North British Housing Association over 50 years ago. Uh, so at the fundamental, the core of the business is still very much our social housing portfolio. So we own and manage 70,000 social housing homes across the UK. But we have actually expanded and diversified quite considerably. So we have retirement, student, uh, leisure centre business, uh, for sale, shared ownership, every kind of tenure. And it's really all about uh, a place for anyone at whatever stage of life they're at. Uh, I joined three and a half years ago to help set up the fund management business. The idea being that rather than uh, lots of institutional investors coming and cherry picking our assets, we could generate and raise our own investment, our own funds, and actually plough the dividends, plough the returns back into social housing, care and support, and actual genuine social value. So um, that's really come what our mission is. It's about sustainable real estate investment management um, and really transparent fee structures. And lots of this is you know, being talked about in the fund management industry, but it's something we're probably the only one in the UK that's really got a genuine track record of social value beyond just sending staff to paint fences once a year and that kind of thing. Uh, so yeah, this is all kind of the house stuff. You can find all this on our website. It's all there. But really, the, the key thing is that ESG, and I'm sure many of you will be familiar with this term, environmental, social, and governance. Um, Catherine alluded to it, and there's this interesting trend of certain words like resilience or sustainability um, almost becoming undermined by, by how everyone interprets them very differently. And you kind of get sort of greenwash um, perspective on them. So when I started working in this space, it was all about CSR, corporate social responsibility, and really being seen to do the right thing. And it was almost out of, out of real estate funds marketing budgets that they wanted to support something around risk or resilience or climate. Um, now ESG, that is this kind of tripartite, this, the three pillars of the stool idea that you are actually actively engaged in the built environment at all of those levels. You need to consider your environmental impact, your waste, your energy, your water. You need to 
actually consider your social impact and the quality of the governance that you have. Um, so that is something that's really pushing across the entirety of the real estate industry from you know, BlackRock and Blackstone all the way down. But these are kind of something that we as a, as a house have done since we were started. Right, so back into kind of the, hopefully what's slightly more interesting. I think there has been a bit of a cultural shift around the approach to climate in real estate. There is clearly the ne very negative stereotype of the real estate developer, um, which exists for a reason. Um, and one of the challenges when I was started working in this space, giving sort of CPD lectures to very broad fund managers who had to be there about why they needed to care about green stuff and sustainability was really they were looking for the so what. Fine, I have to do it, but there must be a premium. Otherwise, why would I bother? So there's that whole debate that some of you may have come across around the green premium or the brown discount. Where, where's the kind of skin in the game to make it worth my while beyond doing the CSR kind of right thing? One of the big catalysts about 10 years ago was this retrofit of the Empire State Building. It's a fantastic case study. You can find it if you're more technically minded than I am. Uh, it's all on the Rocky Mountain Institute website, which is a huge US um, nonprofit that focuses on real estate and climate change. Um, it was catalyzed by the building owner, a guy called Tony Malkin, who was a real passionate early convert in the industry to the kind of role of climate change in real estate. And he basically funded himself. He owns the Empire State Building, as you do. Uh, funded a massive retrofit that was targeting a 38% energy efficiency um, and $4.4 million annually. I mean, it's the most fantastic building, but if you go into it, so whoever did it, a kind of retrofit on in the 70s, put in these hideous false ceilings. I mean, it was really, really ugly as a, as a place to work in. Um, and it hid in all the kind of amazing art deco architecture. Um, but one of the really cool things they did, they developed this um, system where they, they, they cleared the second floor of the building and they created a factory in there that um, made new windows that were much more kind of thermally secure but actually could kind of ventilate as well and they had a system where they could pop out an entire floor's windows um over two nights and put these kind of new glass in and it was all made inside the building so it's really really exciting it was a great project and that was really kind of a it got a lot of press in the real estate industry because it's a landmark building and he could show i'm doing this for a business benefit it's saving me money by 2012 he was saying actually it saved me five percent more energy than we expected and even more money and it was great um the challenge for that is that most real estate fund owners don't tend to have landmark buildings of that size or scale or the financial capacity and passion to kind of run one of those massive retrofits. And the savings that people like me were there going, look, we could save maybe 3% on this or a few hundred thousand here and a few hundred thousand there, frankly, was considered a rounding error in terms of the, the, over kind of the overall budgets of, of a, a fund manager. So there was a real challenge in terms of getting adoption of that kind of project as, as well regarded as it was. Um, so in 2011, I was part of an 18-month initiative uh, the World Economic Forum ran, which is all about trying to push the industry to understand the benefits a bit more. So there's a report, which um, I tried to get it this morning, and it's, their website's down at the moment, but it's called Catalyzing Retrofit Finance. And it's all around particularly commercial office. It started in the office space because it was a bit more tangible and a bit easier to get your head around. Um, but the idea of that was that how you could try and persuade the industry of the kind of the commercial benefits as well as the ethical benefits of investing in sustainability and in, uh, in, in that. But really anything around risk, around the kind of risk to your portfolio, honestly wasn't really touched on. It was all about financial savings, operational savings that you could make over the life of your portfolio. Um, and there was a bit more pressure that you, know, you will be familiar with the stats that 39% of um, global emissions come from real estate. 11% of those come from kind of construction. It's actually very easy to build an efficient new building, but it's the existing buildings that are the challenge. That's what we were trying to get hold of there. The big transition really was Superstorm Sandy. 
in uh, 2014. Unfortunately, it took something as devastating as this to make much of the real estate industry understand that the impact that climate events could have on you know, not only people, but their assets and their, their portfolio and the value of that. And I think that shifted you know, not only the real estate sector, but the insurance sector to have to think about that more. This is a great ULI report by Professor Sven Beinart from 2014 that I still really recommend. There have been some updates since, but it's great. But a highlight there is that the monetary losses related to real estate and infrastructure from severe weather events were uh, recorded as 109.5 billion euros per year. And I think that's going up. So that I think for me, 2014 was the tipping point. In terms of legislation and policy, kind of carrots and sticks, we also had EPBD2, the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive 2, had the formation of the Green Property Alliance, which got all of those industry bodies together and research reports and, and sort of, there was a much more kind of stick drivers for real estate owners to take this issue seriously. Um, and more recently, this is just from this week, as I'm sure you've seen and you'll hear from the insurance guys, the flip side of that is now, as increasing numbers of climate events happen, stuff becomes uninsurable and how do we manage that? So I think real estate fund owners are now really considering this in a much more cohesive fashion. Um, LNG, legal in general, many of you will know, no longer find anything to do with oil and gas. They've pulled out of that entirely. Um, this podcast I just saw on LinkedIn this morning, Nina is um, the Director of Responsible Property Investment at MNG, and she is genuinely one of the pioneers in, in terms of this industry. Um, but there's conversations around you know, how they tackle it, how they do it across their portfolio. Um, but I was yesterday with HSBC, and they had a global conference around uh, sort of decarbonizing cities and cities of the future. There's a guy there called Dr. Michael Ridley. He did a fantastic presentation. So I've pinched his slide, some of his headlines there, but I urge you to go and look at it. But about green bonds and the huge appetite that's suddenly emerging from cities, from sovereign wealth funds, from institutional investors, who frankly five years ago wouldn't have given a monkeys about this, would have seen it as a CSR tick. But in understanding that climate risk is materially important and it's something they actually need to invest in preventing any further. From my point of view, you really need to tackle into the operational side as well and think about green leases and how you actually manage these buildings efficiently once they're built and they're stabilized. But I found that what I found most encouraging yesterday were there were a number of speakers from China, obviously it was HSBC, uh, talking. I did a conference in China about four years ago with the government around sustainability and innovation. And we spent three days there talking in huge detail about all the work that we've done that they could adopt. And at the end, the, the senior guy stood up and said, yeah, that's all fine, but our priority is clean coal. And we were in Chengdu, which is a city which is incredibly polluted. It's so polluted, you can put your hand through it. It's absolutely disgusting. And that was very, very dispiriting. Into their new five-year plan now, they are really, really focused on decarbonisation, on understanding that they cannot pursue that kind of fossil fuel focus, um, and that actually climate, the risk of you know, extreme events is, is really growing for them as well. So this focus on green bonds was actually very encouraging for me that those large megacities in Asia that are coming through are being designed and thought about in a way that perhaps might be slightly more sustainable. So that's a little bit of a canter through some of the stuff that I've experienced and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. Hey, good morning. Thank you um, for having me here today. Thank you, Christine and the developer, and for everybody who's behind the scenes at pulling this together. As a former event organizer on the Olympics, where I worked for three years, I know how much it takes, so thank you. Um, my name's Chantal Henderson. I'm Director of Commercial Finance at Grosvenor, Britain and Ireland. Before that, I was with Deloitte for 13 years in their consulting group and spent uh, three years at LOCOG as Head of Financial Planning of the London Olympics. Um, and Really, I wanted to sort of share Grosvenor's story around how we think about investment and how we think about risk and resilience, because where we are 
as I stand here today is quite different if I had been here this time last year talking to you. Um, so Grosvenor is a 340-year-old property company that is family-owned. We own uh, most of Mayfair and Belgravia and lots of other places around Britain and Ireland. And we also are in 60 cities globally um, and uh, have a increasing kind of footprint. Always in that 340-year history, we've thought about wanting to leave places better than where we found them. But I think the definition of what leaving something better than you found it has probably changed quite dramatically in recent times. But what we have been doing consistently over that period is taking a really long-term approach. Um, this concept of patient capital is something I've had to learn in my lexicon. But it's true, decisions that might be taken this week, and as a finance director, a decision to allocate capital to something this week, the benefits of that really don't come for maybe five, 10. And in our case, you know, we have a 40-year strat plan that's part of a 100-year plan that the family office have. We really do look that long-term. And when you are looking that long-term in a conservative company you, who have to protect future generations of a family, you have a duty as part of your job to look at horizon scanning and to look at the risks that are coming to those, to those future generations, both of the family and of the property and places. Um, and that's what we do. It's probably been our uh, unique selling point over the years, but it evolves and it has to evolve now. So we look at long-term consequences on a human level, on a social level, on a property level, on a city level. And we look at our assets individually. We also look at the spaces between our assets. And so at a neighborhood level, and then we look at a, a city level as well. Um, so quite interestingly this year, if you follow us, but I'll, I'll tell you our story, we've published some 2030 goals, which are quite aggressive. Um, net zero carbon operating emissions by 2030, zero waste, net positive biodiversity. So lots of the things the speakers have been talking about today, which are great. And we've published it and it's out there and that was super easy to do. It wasn't super easy to do. It was almost the most gut-wrenchingly painful thing for a 300-year-old company to do is to put out a public statement committing to do something that you actually do not have a confirmed pathway of how you will achieve so hard to do. Signing off those commitments internally was super easy last November. Putting the press release out in March was the moment everyone went, stop, what, what are you saying? Why would you say that out loud to anybody? We're like, well, we've already agreed to do it. We're just going to tell people we've agreed to do it. And they're like, under no circumstances will you public, like, publicly put that? And we're like, no, mm, it's fine, it's on the FT. But um, just get it out quick before they notice. But the reason why it was so hard is because in a prestigious organization with a really big brand to protect and a family behind it, it's very hard to put yourself out there and say, I don't know, but I'm going to try my hardest and I'm going to get there. Because normally, Grosvenor sort of knows because we've been doing it for 300 years. And to say, we just don't know, but we know it's the right thing to do was extraordinarily hard from a change management point of view. And earlier when we asked the room, what are the barriers in some of its policy and some of its technology change and getting an organization to change or others around you to change was one of the biggest barriers. And for us, that was certainly true. So I'm going to share with you kind of four key events that I think took us from knowing it was the right thing to, to want to do 
internally agreeing it and actually then being able to say it out loud publicly. The first of which was internally, increasingly, we were looking at the data. I'm a finance director. I like certainty. I like facts. I like some data. Um, and if I can't have certainty, I like levels of confidence and probability. And what I do know is that the nice, stable past that we have had is highly unlikely to be the future picture. All of the stuff that Alistair talked about at the beginning, and I'm sure all the people under Perder, if they were allowed to say it out loud right now, would be saying the future is not going to be how it was in the past. So if you are valuing things on the basis of past performance or recent comparables, it's quite likely your valuation methodology is completely wrong. So you might want to be thinking about it in a different way. Take those valuations and maybe just add a bit of a, a, a twist to them, especially if you're looking in the 30-year time horizon. The certainty I do know is our, our plus scenario is not naught, is it? It's going to be probably, hopefully, one and a half. I've got three kids, so you know I'm still hopeful. Um, but it, more likely, as Alistair says, we're on more on the four degrees. So I run the risk man enterprise risk management and horizon scanning activities with our board as well. So I force them to go through some quite painful realization moments. But we were going around in circles, and so basically I said to our wonderful sustainability um, manager, Emily, for those of you who know Emily Hamilton, just take the entire leadership team to some experts and make, I, I can't talk about this well enough, make them listen to some experts. So we took our entire senior leadership team to the Cambridge Institute for Sustainable Leadership for two days in January this year. The entire team, we co-designed the course with them and um, we listened to the academics and we brought in specialists and we brought in others from Unilever and from Body Shop and many other companies. And some people went in because we were having a grassroots sort of swelling from Sylvia and others saying, "We guys, we need to sort of square this out a bit more. We need to be able to talk about this to get what we want. Some people went into those two days thinking this is going to be brilliant because I'm going to hear about the stuff I'm passionate about. And frankly, a lot of people went in quite cynical because it's going to cost too much to do sustainability and it's going to ruin their appraisals. And um, two days, and you know, we still have that conversation, by the way, but two days later, everybody as a aligned and united leadership team came out going, we just can't ignore this. If we ignore this, who else is going to be the person that's sorting out? Who are they? We're they. We are they. You are all they. And waiting for policy and waiting for politicians and waiting for the other people they that you're waiting for is probably going to be too late. And we agreed, frankly, we didn't need it to be the law to do the right thing. We wanted to just start making some changes ourselves. So that was the first thing. The second thing was uh, quite quickly convincing the chief executive and my boss, the CFO, to stand up in front of the whole organization and promise to reject any appraisal that didn't st stack up on an environmental basis. Um, and they were still so enthusiastic and evangelical from Cambridge that they did it, which was brilliant. I'm not sure I'd get them to do it again, actually, but they, they did. Um, so they stood up and importantly, my boss, who's the CFO, said, I am going to reject appraisals that do not put this stuff in. So we have embedded through our appraisal process now metrics that show that you are contributing to biodiversity net gain and to environmental things. Um, and we can talk about that later if you would like. We've also made ownership everybody's. It's not just a small sustainability team's responsibility. Yes, they can be the technical experts, but it's everybody's responsibility. Um, so everybody has objectives and 35% of people's bonuses are based on it now. So if you didn't like it because you didn't think your appraisal stacked up, you might just want to think about salary. Um, so that, that was quite important. 
and we wanted to bring others with us. We can't do it on our own. That's why we said it out loud. We realised we couldn't do it on our own. So we want to talk to all of you in this room. We want to talk to the Met Office. We want to talk to other landowners and insurers and banks about how we can invest properly. Because if you look at risk and resilience, I tell you the risk that's coming. It's just uh, the status quo and we're all too scared to be the first mover. That's the real risk. Resilience is looking at how we look at this straight on and work together. Thank you. A lot of what we've just heard absolutely hits the, the mark in terms of our world. Uh, I think we live in a world that's backward looking. Our world, insurance. The past, the trends, everyone plots them forward, but exactly as Chantel just ended with, the future forward look as to what risk is going to bring is the most important. And it's what insurers are turning to now in, in terms of part of their planning. But in terms of our general views of where we, we sit today, the real issues that we're facing between macro issues, economic and social issues, and by social issues in the insurance sense, we're talking about the influence of what we all want, what, we, what we're seeing, whether it's liability issues, who's to blame, uh, economic issues, obviously we're in the midst of a, a very interesting time. It doesn't need to, an insurance advisor to, to talk about that, but there's talk through even this morning in the AJ about the phone stopping ringing, projects aren't going. So there's, there's serious economic issues that underlie some of the things that we'll go into in a few moments. But the reality for, from our perspective, if we're looking at construction and infrastructure and placemaking, there are some specific trends that are apparent at the moment. Um, and they, they've been building for a few years, but they've just manifest in particular in the last so 18 months or so. And they're having effect on trading for a lot of people in the room, a lot of businesses in different perspectives. So Jack and I will cover the reason for the duet is Jack is involved more on the construction developer side and I'm involved on the profession side of our business. So, so we have a commonality of interest, but we have very different clients to represent and different interests. So it does create a dynamic tension sometimes in terms of even our business, never mind looking at the world at large. So just as we walk through some of this, it will make sense why there's two of us here. So, so if you're looking at the issues that are undoubtedly out there at the moment, there's a real scrutiny on construction quality. And like anything, it's very easy to look at examples and pictures of things that have gone wrong. But sometimes you've got to look at the causes of the causes of claims. And that's something that we'll try and get through as we reach the end of this, this particular presentation. But we all know the obvious, and we don't want to dwell on that today. Uh, we Things like Edinburgh schools slide under the radar, uh, a wall that collapses, and very simple building methodology that's not been followed. Why? Because no one had a single point responsibility on quality. It was a focus on cost. Got it. The development of water damage claims that Jack will talk through a few of the issues that have come through on that side. And then we've got alternative energy, which absolutely is at the heart of the things that we're looking to achieve, yet in a risk context and in terms of a claims context, have proven to be very challenging for the insurance industry. So all of that has created questions on insurer appetite. And this is the first seamless handover to my boy band member for, for point two. So, I mean, really for us, what we're seeing day to day is a reduction in insurer capacity in certain markets. And it's certainly affecting the professions, Jack, mm -hmm. in terms of the, the other areas. There's others that are 
undoubtedly affected. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I look after uh, a number of projects insurances. So I arrange uh, the upbuild insurances from when the spay goes in the soil right the way through to practical completion. Uh, and pretty much overnight, uh, premiums uh, doubled, trebled, in some cases quadrupled, uh, because of insurer uh, reduction in capacity. But also, they started to have a lot more scrutiny, scrutiny in um, what the projects were being done. Previously, they were quite happy just putting their capacity down, happy not really having that much information. Occasionally, they'd asked a little bit on timber frames or maybe uh, how long it's going to take. Uh, but overnight, they really started to dig into it. Now, the reason for that were a number of significant claims within the market. So. We, the insurance market in the UK isn't solely affected by UK risks. Uh, they, Lloyds of London, as, as you may have heard, will insure anything and everything, uh, but are involved in uh, a number of significant projects around the world. So we had, uh, and these are just two examples. I mean, there's, there's many, there's probably about 25 of, of similar sort of values. Um, we had a casino being built, uh, which was a 250 million pound uh, dollar, sorry, fire. And then our hydroelectric dam, there's been a couple of these losses uh, over in South America. Uh, this one was quite interesting because a couple of weeks before they increased their or enhanced their cover and added an extra $500 million worth of cover. And two weeks later, there was some issues. Uh, it caused a big, uh, big damage loss uh, in one of the escape tunnels and they haven't been able to stop. Uh, the leak that's coming through. And when I say leak, it's, it's significant. Um, and that's now on for the market of just touching $2 billion. Uh, insurers like to use dollars, by the way, because it looks bigger um, and, and it's a bit, uh, bit more stable, but uh, a bit more stable in the UK at the moment. But um, yeah, so uh, that is one of the international reasons why insurers started to get panicky and started to really push their premiums and really push their terms and conditions. But that's not to say that the UK haven't had uh, their issues either. Um, some of these you, you may have seen. Uh, London, the Mandarin Oriental Hotel was undergoing refurbishment. Uh, that had a fire there. Glasgow Art School had two in as many years uh, on a fire, uh, which was an interesting one because the same insurer was on it twice. Um, so they weren't particularly pleased. And then uh, Belfast, this was a uh, refurbishment where Primark were in the building there. And again, um, the fires that are coming through are very public as well. Um, as soon as a fire happens, you'll see it on the news pretty sharpish. Uh, so it gets insurers very nervous. And following these sort of events, they then use that as their excuse for really restricting their capacity and being able to provide the insurance. Um, but that's not to say that fires still, sorry, fires still um, the only thing, uh, flood. So everybody will think flood. Uh, insurers have got incredibly good at flood mapping now. They know where the floods well, they know where they feel the floods are going to happen. They know where they're going to be, their exposure. And historically, flood has always been rivers, floodplains, and similar. But now it's internal floods. So as uh, builds start to becoming more complex, people are building more things in. Um, there's various protocols that people have to go through, such as biodiversity. The um, buildings are now suffering significant internal flood. Now, some of that is rushing, where the uh, pipes aren't done correctly or the sprinklers aren't done correctly. Some of it is just the nature of, of where it is. But as soon as the flood happens, it's usually a couple of weeks before practical completion. And that brings some significant values at risk for insurers. So all of that time together started to reduce 
the London market capacity. So we're down at about 20% now from where it was a couple of years ago, and it's continuing to go down. Now, that will plateau at some point, uh, I have no doubt, as insurers start to get more money into the pot. It's very cyclical uh, insurance. But it has made for a very turbulent market and has made uh, developers getting insurance and, and that part of their project very difficult. And that is all down to risk and how these projects are being viewed. So I think just turn back to Paul. Okay. Still with us? So the, the profession side have obviously had similar but subtly different concerns. And, and the, there's, there's one quote that the ne next week there's a group of CEOs from consultant engineers the great and the good, and I was picking through some of their quotes from last year uh, in terms of how they saw the market. And, and the, the whole idea of doing more for less uh, doesn't really stack up in terms of a long-term strategy. As a short-term uh, tactic to try and improve market mobility and the like, it's helpful. But a few of the comments that came through, I'll just read some of them for you. That. Uh, we cannot accept risk that's through the roof when the rewards are through the floor. How can we match a collaborative approach with an adversarial system? And all of this, and there's a number of others I could run through, but all of this is sitting against the context for the insurance market that uh, 2017, it had its worst performance on record. Uh, it, Lloyd's results in that particular year was a significant loss, 3.4 billion. And of course, what did Lloyd's then do as a consequence of that? They thought, well, what is contributing to those losses. So they, they ran a very specific review into PI and they found out that professional indemnity for non-US risks was the second worst performing portfolio in Lloyd's. Why would that be? Well, if you look at it in very simple terms, the findings that, that run through, uh, there's abundant capacity, yet losses are increasing and the costs associated with managing those losses are increasing. Looking at that sort of period, it's, we've talked about billions and numbers there, but 435 million as an aggregated loss over five years is an enormous amount of premium if you think about what a professional firm typically pays. And 62% of the syndicates in the market were loss making. That's quite stark. And what they had to do was approve plans for remuneration, and it's simple strategy, any management would apply. You're not going to make profit, why would you continue? So that reduction in capacity, there are factors that are, that are in there and that those changes that are coming through has led to a reduced, reduced risk appetite. So there's a lot of focus on cladding and other issues that covers are restricted, but the reality is the market cannot afford to fund a new systemic risk exposure when you look back on past performance on the norm that's gone through. So where are we today? So if you look at the PI market, we've been doing this since 1945. I feel like I've been doing it since 1945, but, but I haven't, just a little bit later. I, I entered the market just as that line was coming down to hit the average point. Now, what, what this is, if you take the average rate applied for a pound of professional fees uh, to charge a premium, this is the variation on the norm through the period. So, so in the 80s, we had the LMX spiral, we had Piper Alpha, we had reinsurers running for cover and the insurance market having to fund its own risks without the backing of insurance themselves. So that created that spike that you see there. The next spike we see, well, you know what that was, 2001, 
Uh, it wasn't that beautiful building in New York. It's the ones that are no longer there. Uh, the Twin Towers event, which the market responded to. Now, the reality was the, the market was underfunded and Twin Towers, everyone hears as a reason why the market changed. It wasn't that single event. It was that event that was just the crossing point that people realized that they couldn't continue. And so here we are, we're talking about, I've read in the press in the last little while, there's an insurance crisis in PI and things are really terrible. We're back to the long-term average rate. And all of this is coming through. So it's, it's a serious issue. And a lot of the major insurers that have been involved in PI insurance over the years have either withdrawn from the market. There's names that you've seen over the years that aren't participating anymore. Some will only deal with very large firms, which leaves them vast majority of professions uh, without names like Aviva available to them. So, so there's, there's things of that nature that, that are very much part and parcel of the market cycle that we've got to just be aware of uh, in terms of the affordability and the ability of professional firms to control risk. So, Jack, what can it all mean then? Yeah, so what can this mean for yourselves and for project uh, developers? So you need to be aware of reliance on third, uh, third parties' insurances. Um, it's, it's very easy to turn around and say, it's okay, the contractor's got this. Um, we, uh, we don't need to worry about the insurance that's being put in place. We saw a number of those sort of comments and then a Carillion strikes and uh, you can lose that. But equally, you're relying on this. There's, a, again, a, a bit of a misinterpretation of PI. Um, PI isn't there for people to rely upon. It's for the person that buys it to rely upon. It's a defensive mechanism for them. It's also a claims-made policy. So if that disappears, the historical uh, protection that it provided also disappears. So it's these sort of things that just need to be, uh, people need to be aware of uh, more acutely now that the market is hardening and in terms of conditions are coming back in that had previously disappeared. Uh, increase in premium and excess costs. Well, again, I won't dwell on that. It, that is a certainty at the moment it, it should steady over the next year we think but it's there now it's there to stay uh, insurers are going to start making money again and then at some point uh, there'll be more competition and that will be driven down but they will start to really push the premium and really push their excesses that are on there uh, particularly we've seen water damage uh, being five or six times uh, the excess than the standard um, uh, excess so it is something that they're pushing through um, this one's the key one, really, involvement of insurers. So going back to my first point um, about previously, they weren't that bothered about what they saw. They just put the capacity down and they were quite happy that they'd, they'd hit their targets. Now, its involvement is, is key. Uh, they are really pushing for involvement at the design stage. They've never had that uh, opportunity or demand. So they are now pushing for uh, automatic water stop valves um, is one of the things that they're asking to be included in the design rather than it being retrofitted or rather than it being ignored. Um, I got my first question on green walls uh, the other day, and that's obviously hit, hit somebody's radar. It's hit an actuary's radar, and they've started to ask about that. Um, I don't quite know why they're asking about that, and it's probably something to do with how it affects the cladding or how it affects the roof or if there's an in increased fire risk. But it's these sort of things that are now being pushed through. Now, correct involvement with insurers can be a real beneficial thing. And um, as Alex alluded to, um, getting the insurers on board and getting insurers to drive something can drive the developers to actually do it because if they can't insure the project, they can't go ahead with the project. The banks won't let them. So getting them on board early on is great, but what we don't want is red, additional red tape for the sake of red tape being put there because the insurer wants to sleep easy at night. We still need to challenge them. We still need to push them. But in this market, they will continue to ensure that they're involved and they will put a lot more emphasis on risk management and making sure that the risk is properly 
uh, boxes properly ticked um, to be mitigated as, as much as possible. So, you've heard the bad news. <laughs> I promised Christine I wouldn't be stereotypical Scots and morbid, so we've got to have some out positive outlook at the end. So, what can we do? Well, it's really simple in some ways. The first, first thing that the industry is not very good at is actually measuring value as opposed to measuring cost. I think there's a lot, lot of focus, a lot of the conversations. We have two and a half thousand professional clients across the UK. So we, we have a real barometer of what's happening in the industry, how they're feeling about things. And the constant complaint is that the, the, the position, the, the competitions that come in, the frustration, they, they feel they've got a wonderful proposition at a tender stage and they've been cut out because someone else's price is far lower and the decision is taken to within that path. And then when you've got such a broad portfolio, you start to see certain projects coming through that have claims. And you wonder, had they gone down another path with that claim of arisen? It's never a, a linear science. It's never precise. You can't say that that's definitely the case, but those kind of elements. So, so an increasing ability to measure value when we've got all the wider environmental agendas that are there, surely that's got to be a focus that would be helpful and beneficial. Then the sustainability of the supply chain. And th this, I did say this was the positive part, but I think just some realism as well has to tie in. So if you look at the position in terms of large claims within the professions market, between 2012 and 2018, we, we were talking as large claims, not catastrophic, uh, but, but so significant, uh, between above a million, but below five. We've seen a 66% increase in claims in that period. That's a significant development. Attritional claims, 100,000 to a million. Uh, we've seen a 50% increase in the frequency of those. So, so just the, the system in terms of how it's creating liability and how it's creating challenges for professionals is clearly there. And as, as someone said, if you continue to pass risk down to those that are at least able to fund it and manage it, that might be problematic. So the question of risk transfer and risk management. At the moment, I think there's a lot of focus on transferring risk by contract down to the parties that, that can ensure it, but perhaps there should be a better view about where the risk should best sit and how it can best be managed. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer, produced by Simon Mercer. With music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at, at TC Murray.